coming from a health department, we might not have the trust of the populations we really want to reach. But community-based organizations do have that trust. And it really was a strategy that was important to honor and recognize the importance of community organizations and the ties and the um, esteem with which community members hold them in and, and partner with them to get the message out there. listening to In Praxis, a podcast on the Praxis Project created to support, hear from, and uplift the stories coming out of the ecosystem of base building organizing. An ecosystem that includes frontline base building groups and the folks who help support their important work. In this season of In Praxis, our hosts, Julian Johnson and Courtney Nam, focus on sugar sweetened beverage taxes. We have compiled interviews from advocates working on issues surrounding the reduction of sweetened sugary beverages, as well as the taxation of these products. Participants of this podcast are community members, public health practitioners, health department representatives, and concerned parents that span across the country. In each episode, you will hear about their phenomenal work, as well as their perspective on the health effects of sugary consumption and in what ways policy can be used to combat this and lead to reinvestment in our communities. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm here with Christina Gutta. Christina, would you mind telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Christina, and I work for the San Francisco Public Health Department. And I've been there for oh a good 20 years now, which is kind of crazy to think it's been that long. I also live in San Francisco, and I'm excited to get to live and work in the same because I get to see the impact of my work in my own community. I've been working in public health for about uh, almost three decades, and all of that has been in the San Francisco Bay Area. I work in the health department to address the inequities to physical activity and nutrition. Um, and in the 20 years that I've been there, about 17 or 18 of those have been focused in that area. And we've always done this work focusing on what people can do, not not necessarily on the negative things that they shouldn't be doing, but how can we promote and make it easier for healthy eating and active living? So this is more so a broad question, but I'd love to hear how you first got involved in working on issues of health in general. Sure. Well, I, out of college, gotten a degree in English with no intention of teaching. I uh, landed a job with a high-tech company and I worked there for three years and laid off and ended up on a whim going to Prague with a good friend of mine who was doing research on condom manufacturing in Eastern Europe as part of her business school. So I ended up interviewing people about their perspectives on HIV and AIDS. 
And I had happened at the same time to pick up the book And the Band Played On by Randy Schultz about the AIDS epidemic. So all of that just sparked this absolute new fascination with health and this whole new field of public health that I had honestly never heard of. I was so upset to understand and learn how politics was playing into and very negatively impacting people's health. Mm. So when I got back, I uh, researched how, what kind of work could I do and how could I get into that work? And I decided that my best shot at doing something would be to go into um, grad school and get a master in public health, which is what I did. And I went to San Jose State um, to, to earn that master's in public health and to kickstart a new career. Awesome. And so when looking at the issue of sugary drinks, when did you first realize that they were related to health problems? Yeah, that's a good question. I remember very clearly. We had started this Shape Up San Francisco coalition in 2006. And I was serving on the Bay Area Nutrition and Physical Activity Coalition, their steering committee. And one of the partners there, Alameda County, um, in 2007, shared their new campaign called Soda Free Summer. We had just written a whole strategic plan. And honestly, it's probably the worst strategic plan I've ever <clears throat> led. <laughs> <laughs> really wasn't strategic. It just had everything in there that everybody wanted to do. (laughs) But it had nothing in there about sugary drinks. And since it wasn't really the kind of strategic plan that allowed you to say no to new projects, we just added that and started focusing on sugary drinks. Um, (laughs) uh, The next version of the strategic plan, I might add, was quite a bit more focused. Um, It did not have the kitchen sink in there. So it was in 2007 where we heard about the Soda Free Summer campaign that Alameda County had come up with, and they had come up with it because their director, Tony Eiton, had noticed um, he was in Costco and just seeing people haul out, you know, cases and cases of soda. And they sort of investigated it a little bit more and really sparking the work on round sugary drinks. And at that time, I understood sugary drinks to be a contributor to overweight obesity and therefore a contributor to chronic diseases that we were trying to prevent, like mm-hmm. diabetes and heart disease and so forth. And so as you were learning more, I guess, when did you decide that this is going to be something I'm going to invest my energy in, I'm going to put my time into reducing the consumption of sugary drinks? Was there was it just as you were gradually learning more? Or was there like a switch or a moment when you said, I'm going to invest my time in this more so? I think that the beginning of Soda Free Summer campaign, where we, as part of the Bay Area Nutrition and Physical Activity Council, BANPAC, that is really what opened my eyes and made me realize that it's a significant contributor um, doing this work around chronic disease prevention, especially related to nutrition and eating. We all need food. And so that becomes a trickier discussion. It's trickier than, for example, tobacco. You Mm -hmm. don't need tobacco. You need liquids and you need drinks. But the fact that sugary drinks generally have no nutritional value became a really clear focus on 
why are we drinking it then? You know, Mm -hmm. what value does it add to our health? At the same time, I feel like the science was really starting to grow and become more prevalent on the negative impact of liquid sugar. As I learned, it's quite distinct in both how our body processes it and how it works in our system in terms of signaling the brain, changing our chemistry and our our brain not recognizing that we're full anymore. It just made me realize that it's, it's much deeper and it is not an innocuous product. The industry played a role also in making it so cheap and available and just constantly increasing the quantity mm-hmm. so that people were drinking amounts that were getting to that point of being really dangerous to their yeah. health. It wasn't just a one-time treat. It was a, you know, drink this for breakfast, lunch, and dinner kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I feel like pretty quickly after I was introduced to this of sugary drinks as a contributor to poor health, once we jumped on the bandwagon, and we haven't gotten off. And so in your current work, what are some studies you've seen that help in the reducing the consumption of sugary drinks? There's a spectrum of work that needs to happen. Prevention institutes, the spectrum of prevention is something that I've lived my professional life by for many, many years. Certainly back in 2008, it was clear to us that we needed to purely educate people why this is an issue. Even in 2020, we might still need to educate people about why this is this remains an issue. And so we started with that. We just started with that very basic soda-free summer campaign to educate people, um, educate the community. And we started to engage other coalitions and organizations as partners and educators, different providers, getting them to help us figure out how to decrease consumption of sugary drinks. Part of that education was going to our city family, if you will. And we presented to the leadership at Recreation and Parks Department. They were with us right right there next to us. And Um, After we presented to them, they did two very important things. They pulled the vending machines out of their community centers, Mm. and they created a policy for their summer camps. Their summer camps would be soda-free, and they changed the snacks and the drinks that they served to children so that it was basically, you know, spa water, fruit or herb-infused water. And healthier snacks. They were really one of the ones to get us thinking about organizational wellness policies. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of the next level. It's all about shifting the culture, the norms, changing the conversation around it. Because we did have a big policy goal. The coalition was always operating on something of a shoestring. Well, they had staffing provided by the health department. Didn't really have much of a budget um, unless we got a grant or two. And we were really clear that we needed a sustainable funding stream to really do the work around chronic disease prevention. The idea of taxing sugary drinks became something that the coalition made a priority. As we worked with policymakers to write um, legislation that was grounded in public health, that was grounded in data, and to make a case for 
why sugary drinks? Why, what's special and unique about those? So we sort of moved up that spectrum of prevention from awareness and education to building coalitions and doing organizational change to finally the one at the top that really looks at policy change. And so San Francisco is one of four jurisdictions in the Bay Area that now has a soda tax. Mm-hmm. It took San Francisco two tries to pass a soda tax, one in 2014, which did receive a majority of votes, but required a supermajority. Mm. So it technically didn't pass. Uh, the second attempt was successful. That just required a simple majority to pass. And so that, that passed in 2016. And we do look at soda tax as a way to decrease consumption in a couple of ways because some populations are more price sensitive. We hope that that reduces consumption and that importantly to take the revenue and put that money right back into the communities that are both targeted by industry and therefore drink more sugary drinks and have higher rates of chronic diseases. That is really the way that um, we hope and expect the soda tax to positive impact in the community. Mm. And you mentioned that you had to go through two rounds of trying to pass the legislation, but I'm wondering, and uh, the stages of like awareness and education and coalition building and organizational changes, was there any pushback you saw on the community level um, in response to the different initiatives you guys were trying to roll out? Certainly respect to the tax, there was Mm -hmm. definitely pushback from the community. And I think some of that was just acknowledging that it might, it it might, and it could hit poor people harder and that they had more important things to worry about. I mean, San Francisco is a really expensive city and housing was really far more important or, or violence. And so it was sort of a both and in terms of just the issue of sugary drinks. Like why, why should we be bothered with that? It doesn't seem to land fairly. And one way we address that is after the 2014 tax didn't quite make the mark. We worked closely with UCSF and the Heart Association, the bigger picture, great uh, resource for, um, those that want to you know, use videos developed by young people about sugary drinks, partnered with them to work with a number of different community organizations to, to put funding into the community. It wasn't a lot of money, it was just a little bit of money, but to engage community-based organizations and to do that education. Because coming from a health department or a organization like UCSF or Heart Association, we might not have the trust of the populations we really want to reach. Mm-hmm. But community-based organizations do have that trust. And it really was a strategy that was important to honor and recognize the importance of community organizations and the ties and the um, esteem with which community members hold them in and, and partner with them to get the message out there. And once we did that, we had some other natural allies that had developed as a, as a result of that, that became just absolutely key constituencies in the 2016 campaign. Mm-hmm. And so when I think when looking at different health initiatives across soda tax work or other policy areas, there is this 
I would say desire or consideration to also make sure that health equity is centered in that work. And so when looking at area of good policy, you know, what are some ways that we can center health equity in the approaches that you've been a part of and in being a part of that legislation? What ways are better than others, I guess I would say, in making sure that health equity is centered in soda tax policy? We, as a health department and me as a white person, we really need to make sure that um, people that are going to be most impacted are sitting at the table with you every step of the way, that they're sitting at the table with you when you're talking about legislation and what does that legislation look like and how can it be tweaked? How can it be changed? How can it be created to ensure that the voice of Black and brown folks is central Mm -hmm. to the work? And both in 2014 and 2016 campaigns, funding organizations, CBOs, to help us with the awareness and education, I think that's also another way to keep equity at the center. And it does have to do with not just asking them to one other thing, but paying them to do one other thing. And the way the rationale was written for the legislation that showed with data that it was impacting African-Americans and Latinos in particular the most. And that the resources should then in turn go right back into those communities to help both impact of sugar drink consumption and work on prevention as well. And I think that also ties into, you know, having a counter message to when the beverage industry claims that these taxes are aggressive, that they will hurt low-income communities, communities of color. I think really emphasizing that, you know, this money is going back into those same communities to improve health outcomes is a way to not only counter message the beverage industry claims, but also make sure that health equity is addressed in those counter messages. Absolutely. I mean, that was definitely a big message. They were spewing all kinds of nonsense in the two campaigns. Um, and by they, I mean the industry. And yeah, as a public health department person, as a reasonable human being, I can see that surface, it looks like soda taxes are regressive. But diabetes is regressive. Mm. And the tactics that the industry uses, I would offer, are regressive. and you know, racist. So that's really the way that we try to counter those messages because it's not a level playing field in any way. And, you know, I've learned a little bit about how the economics of small corner stores works. And the the corner store owners don't have a level playing field either. And they're, you know, they're somewhat at the mercy of the industry as well. Um, and so money and money is often the driver in everything. And the industry has the money to create demand for their products, to make sure that their products are placed in exactly the right place, to make sure that their products are priced in such a way that they're extremely affordable when a sugary drink is less expensive than a bottle of water. That's just I still can't wrap my head around how that is feasible when you think Mm -hmm. about the ingredients and all the marketing. I mean, the amount of money that the industry spends on marketing is insane. So how is it that a soda is less expensive than a bottle of water? Exactly. 
And that shows yeah. their market power. <laughs> no, yes, their market power and the unlimited amount of money and funds they can throw at, you know, health yeah. departments and advocates trying to make change. Yeah. And I think for me, I have definitely become more familiar with soda tax policy and the work that people like yourself are doing over my time at Praxis. And I've, I've seen a lot of parallels of how it draws to tactics of the tobacco industry in terms yeah. of really trying to create these narratives that, you know, are ingrained in the community members' minds. So that way, when people try to show that soda and sugary drinks are causing harm, it's met with either denial or just hesitance to try to make changes. And so I think a lot of people will say, well, the next best thing to do is to continue to pump out more research, to continue to do research and, you know, refute these industry claims. And so my question for you, I guess, is do you feel like that is the right way to go? Is the strategy to, you know, continue to pump out more research to refute industry claims? And if that is the case, you know, what are the most pressing research needs in order to advance that fight against the industry? <laughs> I, I mean, I just, I can't help but roll my eyes and, and laugh because on one hand, during the campaign for the soda tax, and in their case against the soda tax, industry claimed they need more education. You know, they, the, the consumers, just once they know they can make the right decision and, um, you know, y'all can educate people and, and we can help educate people too, which you, I would never trust in industry because we've seen with tobacco what that looks like. And so on one hand, they're saying you don't tax people, it's regressive or whatever they're going to say, all your groceries are going to go in cost because of this tax on sugary drinks. And really, when all all you really need is people need to be educated and they need to exercise more. So they're going to deflect it. And when San Francisco decided to take them up on this notion of more education and recommended and wrote legislation to put a warning label on ads promoting sugary drinks, they suddenly said, you can't do that. And that's not going to work. <laughs> education doesn't work and so it's wow. both, both sides of it from them and um i mean if education doesn't work why do they spend so much money on marketing i just exactly. think that no matter what public health says or anyone that is going against what they're saying and against their stance they're always going to come up with something else so mm -hmm. do we need more research to counter their messages i don't know maybe I know as a public health person, there are a couple of pieces of data that remain elusive. And this relates very directly and specifically to sugary drinks. It's what is consumption really like? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the hardest piece of data to get that is reliable and stable. We can get sales data. Sales data isn't quite the same as consumption data. And I think if we wanted to spend any time on research, that's where I would put my money. I've seen some of this research um, already, but we haven't seen an increase in grocery costs as a result of the soda taxes. We have seen, rather, that the taxes have been, for the most part, put to use the way the legislation intended. I mean, it's not always perfect, but generally, certainly in San Francisco, the funding is going to Black African-American populations, it's going to Latinx populations and other Asian and Pacific Islander populations because they're the ones that are most impacted. But we can have all the data in the world and we're not really allowed to lie. 
not that we do. It's not, it's not how we do our work, but it's not illegal to lie. Yeah. And the industry has no qualms putting forward whatever argument is in their interest in that moment. No, you're exactly right. This question is a little bit more open-ended, but people that may listen in on this conversation may wonder, you know, what is the end goal? What's the end game here? Is it that we have sort of tax policy that's nationally adopted? Is it that we continue to kind of create watchdog apparatuses against the beverage industry? Is it that we want to eliminate the consumption of sugary drinks in its totality? So I guess my question for you would then be, what will it look like when advocates like yourself win against the beverage industry? I do think that having minimally a statewide policy, ideally, yeah, we have national taxes on sugary drinks and that it could go toward, in part, healthcare. The early version of the healthcare legislation, they were proposing using soda taxes to help fund the ACA. And that obviously did not happen. But yes, I think we'd need national policy. Are we going to fully eliminate sugary drinks? I don't think so. And I don't think we need to. They're fine as a treat every so often. I mean, my child has a soda every so often. She doesn't get it every day. And she certainly doesn't get the supersize. But until the industry takes a responsible approach, I don't trust them. They haven't shown that they're trustworthy because their bottom line is making money for their shareholders. And we know that the industry isn't going to protect our children. Mm-hmm. And so we need to protect our children. And that can mean all kinds of things. While in San Francisco, we've required that there are no sugary drinks in our schools and vending machines. You know, every so often you come across a vending machine with sugary drinks in our schools. It's hard to make that work uniformly, at least at this moment in time. So I think that we, as adults, that's our job is to protect children. And maybe it looks something like um, you, you can't just go up to a soda machine and buy sugary drinks. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and you could go get yourself a pack of cigarettes. And maybe that changes too for sugary drinks. Maybe we start looking at that you need ID to buy a sugary drink. Mm-hmm. Um, those those ideas are certainly out there. And if the industry isn't going to ensure that children are safe, then we need to. Yeah. And it's always going to be easier if we have national legislation. It's It's, it's more fair to all merchants and everything. It's just easier. We might get there, but it'll it'll be a while. I don't think we need to worry about whether the beverage industry is going to make it um, or that they're too big to fail, if you will. Because have you seen the explosion of flavored waters yeah. out there? I mean, they're constantly reinventing themselves. And they create a demand for these sugary, syrupy, sweet drinks that are really bad for us and, and very... To the point where sometimes it can be poisonous if you drink enough of it every day. And they can reinvent themselves to create delicious, refreshing products if we're worried about the business end of it. Honestly, I really would rather people drink water out of their taps, assuming that their taps are safe. But that, that for me, that's really what I'd like to see, is that people are drinking water from their taps and spending their money on other things for their families. 
I think that's a great way to end it. Thank you so much, Christina, for taking the time to speak with me. Before we close out, is there anything else you'd like to add? I think what I would add is this work around sugary drinks has been an incredible effort among public health advocates, community advocates, scientists, politicians, researchers, parents banded together to create a healthier and safer place for our children, um, for all of us. And we're all building on the work of other people and other and others. And, you know, our movement is building on the movement of tobacco, tobacco free advocates. And so I think what I would just say is I'm grateful to all the community advocates out there that stood with public health and and really helped us move the needle on sugary drinks. I could not agree more. Thank you so much again, <laughs> Christina. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Praxis. We hope you all enjoyed it. Make sure to visit our website, www.thepraxisproject.org, where you can check out additional episodes of other guests, as well as learn more about our work. 